Fallon Forum. Uh, this is Ed Fallon, your host. We are broadcasting from the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. And if you don't know by now where that is, it's Des Moines, Iowa. We're here in the studios of Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Later in the program, of course, we'll be going through the latest in, the, uh, in climate change news. We'll be giving you an update on the Iowa caucuses. Uh, but first, I want to take a second to thank the local businesses that make this program possible. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, located on 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Uh, Gateway also has an excellent catering service. And thanks to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. Thanks to Ritual Cafe, located on 13th Street between, between uh, Grand and Locust. Uh, that's a... All vegetarian menu at Ritual, and they also uh, serve a lot of uh, fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Uh, thanks also to Noche, Iowa's premier cabaret and jazz club, with an excellent cocktail bar as well. They're located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park. That's Noche. And finally, thanks to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant on Southeast 14th Street. Authentic Mexican food at very affordable prices with really wonderful, excellent service. That's Cinco de Mayo Restaurant. All right, thanks for joining us today, folks. Again, later in the program, we'll give you the latest in the climate news. We'll talk about the Iowa caucuses. But first, I want to welcome Joseph Glazebrook to the program. Uh, Joseph is an attorney with uh, knowledge on a bunch of different areas. Uh, he's been tracking the impeachment debate closely. And um, right now, that is kind of at a, at a crossroads. Uh, the, uh, the initial testimonies is, are complete, and uh, we move on to a committee hearing, I believe, next. Doesn't it go before the Judiciary Committee next? Yes, but there, were, there wouldn't necessarily be a hearing. They'll simply draft the articles of impeachment. The hearing process is more or less uh, finished. They, they did that in the Intelligence Committee. And what did you learn from that? Well, I think the uh, evidence presented was uh, devastating for the president and completely one-sided. I've actually never seen a presentation of evidence that was so... Uh, compelling uh, in proving the guilt of the person accused with absolutely zero evidence to uh, exculpate the president. And this on Fox News um, a couple days ago, uh, 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 Harris Faulkner um, was uh, with uh, Steyerwald, first name, I'm forgetting Steyerwald's first name, uh, and, he, and he said there's, there's no longer any doubt that the president did it. That's no longer up for debate. So, yeah. so both sides, maybe everyone except the president, is admitting that what he allegedly did, he did. Right. It's fact. Yeah, and so there's not really a factual dispute now, and even before mm -hmm. the hearings began, it was a pretty weak factual dispute. There were d discussions about whether Trump was involved, whether it was Giuliani working on his own, things like that, but those have been completely shredded. So in the absence of a factual dispute, the only question is, does this conduct rise to an impeachable offense? That's a legal question. Right. But it's also a political question in the context of impeachment. So here's another question. This, I've, I've heard this from several sources. If this is an impeachable offense, uh, is it any worse than is this the crime of um, of uh, you know utilizing another government to try to take down your political opponent? Is that is that any worse than the crime of rape? Which again, I mean, Trump has been accused by by twenty women of one yeah. level of sexual indiscretion or another, and he's even admitted with his own words, saying again, it's like a magnet. Quote, you know, just kiss. I don't even wait. Grab him by the expletive. You can do anything. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's admitting it. Why? Why was that not the uh, not the focus of an impeachment hearing earlier? Well, there's a couple of distinctions there. One is that that is crude language in which he basically admits to a attitude of of sexual assault being okay. He's not admitting to a specific incident. That, in addition to that, the accusations against him, though I find them very compelling, he does deny them. So there is a factual dispute with regard to each individual incident. More importantly, however, he wasn't president when those allegations are said to have occurred. He was; uh, Those happened before he became president, and the impeachment process is specifically designed to cure a president that commits cr high crimes and misdemeanors while in office. Okay. So let, let's, again, go through exactly what it is that, uh, that now everybody is agreeing uh, President Trump did. Right. So what he did was he... Um, with the president of uh, Ukraine, Zelensky, he basically said, if you want a meeting with me, which I would normally give you, you need to investigate my domestic political rival, Joe Biden, first. And in addition to that, the 
other aspect was he delayed uh, military and other funding to the country, foreign aid to the Ukraine during this time period as well, which they came to find out. And about. Trump felt that the president of the Ukraine was in a unique position to investigate Biden because of Joe Biden's son, Hunter, having a business dealings. Right, Ukraine. right. His yeah, Joe Biden's son was on the board of a company, an energy company in Ukraine, which uh, had some corruption issues. Um, however, he came onto the board after the corruption issues. But the allegation is that um, he he did something wrong that nobody can quite articulate, and that Joe Biden, his dad, intervened to. Uh, oust the prosecutor who was looking into That's it. the Trump story. That's the Trump story. And every intelligence official who's discussed it, including several in the impeachment hearings, Fiona Hill, um, uh, 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 Lieutenant Colonel, uh, uh, I can't remember the, the guy's name. There were several witnesses who, who uh, stated that there was nothing to the allegation that Hunter Biden had done something wrong. Several of the witnesses, in fairness, did say, however, that it does pose a bit of a conflict or the appearance of a conflict of interest to have the uh, a political uh, official uh, be the father of somebody who's on a board kind of dissuades people from wanting to uh, take official action against that company, which might be necessary for that country's interest. But, so, but so everybody maybe, confirmed so, there's so, nothing substantive. So maybe bad judgment on the part of the Bidens, but sure. nothing, nothing explicitly illegal. Yes. And yet what Trump did appears to be emphatically illegal. And again, uh, every, both sides, or many sides, as Trump likes to say, even Fox News are agreeing that's the case. Yeah, there's no question that what Trump did is is a criminal act. Um, there's actually two federal statutes that are implicated here. The first is uh, soliciting something of value from a foreign national. It's illegal. It's what the Mueller report, the investigation was about, whether the Trump campaign solicited uh, help from the Russian government or Russian nationals during the 2016 election. In this case, what he did was he and his agents solicited a uh, opposition research on Joe Biden, which is a thing of value um, from foreign nationals, specifically President Zelensky and others in Ukraine. So that's a very clear case. But that one kind of doesn't really rile you up as much as the, mo the more aggressive case, which I think is bribery. Bribery is a federal crime. It's uh, 18 U.S.C. Two Section 201, if you want to look it up. And basically what it it criminalizes two things, Ed. It criminalizes, like, if you can conceive of bribery in the most basic sense as somebody walking into a public official's office, handing them a bag of money, and saying, okay, now do this for me. You know, uh, don't investigate this, or uh, let, give me the contract for the, the deal. Here's the money. That's the quintessential act of bribery. But the bribery statute punishes both sides of the transaction. It punishes mm. the person who's giving the money, or the person who's trying to get the bribe, and it punishes the politician who gives the bribe. And so this, that's the key here. When Trump, um, you know, withheld a meeting or offered a meeting in exchange for this investigation, basically, um, he was giving an official act or offering an official act in exchange for the dirt on the Bidens, which is the thing of value. It's the bag of cash. Right. So not only was uh, was this uh, foreign solicitation of aid, but it was also bribery, uh, clearly right. under the statute. So it's, it's hard to argue philosophically that impeachment shouldn't uh, proceed. But the bigger question is, uh, and I say this, I, I, normally I'm the guy who says, oh, let's focus on policy and not worry about politics. But every person I know who's planning to vote in the Democratic primary, uh, whether they're concerned about the climate crisis, health care, foreign affairs, nuclear weapons, you name it, immigration, their primary concern beyond that is beating Donald Trump. And the question now is, is this a smart strategy on, on, on the part of Democrats to pursue impeachment? I mean, the polls are now showing that uh, public support for impeachment is declining, and that trajectory is likely to continue. Uh, there's a lot of nervousness within the, even within even the Democratic establishment about whether this is a good idea. Well, I, so first of all, there have been many polls taken on this issue. Most of them, like the vast majority of them, actually show majority support. Uh, in fact, quite staunch support for the inquiry itself. M many of them have over 50 percent for impeachment and removal uh, that now, I've seen. Now, now, according to 535... Um, 538? Sorry, 538. Yes, yes thank you. Uh, the average of national polls, uh, averaging a bunch of national polls, support for impeachment has shrunk from 50.3% in mid-October to 46.3% presently. Well, I mean, that there, there might have been a period where they dipped a little bit. That's only a couple points there. But I think that 
I would I would be very curious to see the polling after the hearings because I think that'll tell us how strong the case was, and it was a very strong case. And now, even if even if support for impeachment and removal was only 45 or 46 percent, that's an astonishing number of people that think the president should be removed from office before his term ends. Normally, Americans are very passive when we come when it comes to impeachment. The only time during the Nixon impeachment hearings that support for impeachment rose above 50 percent was right before he resigned. Mm. Bill Clinton, the highest it ever got was like 45 percent in the mid 40s. He, he never got over 50 percent. So the point is that Trump is already at this peak where the other the previous two were at uh, or maxed out at. Yeah. I think that the other thing to keep in mind, though, is that this has really, really shown Trump to be a really corrupt guy. Even if there's not political support for removal and the Senate votes to acquit him, I still think it will have done the country a service because it will disincentivize the president from continuing to try to cheat in elections, which really? has you been th- a, you a think pattern. Really? Any way to disincentivize him from doing anything, any of the wrong behaviors he seems to be so uh, adept at? Yes, I do. I believe this will. Th- this is one thing that will disincentivize that because it's the House using the only power it has, literally, yeah. to stop the president from doing what he's doing. And, and it has brought... Has exposed several individuals who are involved in this as well. Who I would be, and I, I know we're cynical today about the Justice Department, but I will. I would be very surprised if Rudy Giuliani, Rick Perry, uh, don't get indicted over this. Possibly even Devin Nunes. Now we're seeing reports that he was involved in soliciting this dirt on Joe Biden as well. So uh, again, beyond beyond the question of what the House might do, and I think I think the, right now the House Democrats have set the course. They're probably going to vote to impeach. And the U.S. Senate, led by Mitch McConnell, is going to do what? He's going to hold a uh, trial. He's stated it's going to be about two weeks, uh, which is short compared to the Clinton impeachment. But they've got most of the evidence, as, as we talked about. So I don't, I don't know. Well, and they they're going to have a trial, and, and the Senate's they, going to acquit him. Right, probably. exactly. So what, what, what do Democrats gain by pushing, the, pushing this forward? They, they, they're not gonna, he's, he's not going to get he's, he's not gonna be, be removed from office. Um, if for some reason he is removed from office, then you got Mike Pence. Yeah. Is, isn't Mike Pence a more formidable opponent than Donald Trump? I think a post-impeachment Mike Pence is perhaps the weakest candidate the Republicans could possibly field. I think a Mike Pence who's not tainted by impeachment would be more formidable. But after impeachment, he, I mean, that would be a devastating... How is, how is Pence tainted by impeachment? Well, two, two reasons. First of all, he's implicated directly in the scheme. He went to Ukraine. He was given a copy of uh, the phone, the tw- July 25th phone call in his briefing book, and he read it. So he knew that Trump had solicited a thing of value from the uh, Ukrainian government. He then met with Ukrainian officials and discussed uh, the meeting, which basically means he was acting as Trump a- Trump's agent to deny the meeting to the president. So he was kind of an agent involved in this. But even if you don't make the argument that he was directly doing something wrong, you still have the fact that he is the president who comes in after a Republican gets removed from office. That is a politically crippled position inherently, no matter what the circumstances are. And so when when everybody in the country sees the president of the United States leave office because of corruption, the guy who was his ally and defender comes in, he's just weakened. And so I think it would be I think it'd be good for Democrats, but I don't think he's going to get removed. No, no. And again, that's 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 a, a, a an odd. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's probably not going to happen because again, the House will impeach, the Senate will acquit, right. and then that'll be the end of it. And we're talking about probably what around the time of the Iowa caucuses, yes. February, that this is going to wrap up. Right. In the meantime, I, my my prediction is that polls are going to continue to show more and more people um, not in support of this this um, circus continuing. And again, I understand. I, I call it a circus, but again, I understand why why it's important to hold an official accountable when something like this is uh, is is done. But I think, um, I, I, and, may, and maybe it'll maybe by the time summer and the fall and the, the November general election rolls around, it won't be on people's minds anymore. But it does seem to me like it's it's counterproductive in terms of. Um, it, it makes the Democrats seem like they're focused on something that really isn't that instrumental. Uh, central to people's lives when they're trying to figure out how to pay pay the rent and whether they'll keep their job, whether climate change will be addressed. These these things seem to be much more dominant in in voters' minds right now than impeachment. Well, I think that certainly there are a lot of people who want the Democrats to focus on substantive issues as well, and they've passed hundreds of bills out of the House that are in the Senate going nowhere right now. So you can't really claim that Democrats aren't doing those things. I think, though, that it's 
it's the fundamental duty of elected officials to uphold their oath to the Constitution. The Constitution provides the House with the sole power of impeachment. The president committed one of the most serious crimes a president can commit. He is a corrupt man who's using his public office for personal gain against the national security interests of the country. That is exactly what George Mason and others who are debating the Constitution articulated during those debates as the most dangerous thing a president can do, being intermingled with foreign countries to try to use his power of office to cheat. That is a horrible thing, and the House would be uh, just abdicating its responsibility if they didn't proceed with this, even if the Senate chooses not to, uh, to remove. One last thing on this. Before they started the impeachment inquiry, the Democratic Party's hair was on fire. People in social media were upset, just horribly upset with their elected representatives for not doing the impeachment. And now you have people who are saying, oh, they shouldn't do it now because it's too risky. It might upset people. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, a circus. Well, I disagree. I think it's the most important thing, mm -hmm. like beyond any other issue <clears throat> that the Congress has to do. I think it's to, to hold a corrupt president accountable. And if they didn't do it, I think they'd lose support from their base. So, I mean, I, maybe there are polls that I miss. Maybe there's conversations that I miss. But, gosh, in the many, many candidate events I've gone to uh, – I have not heard a lot of talk prior prior to the impeachment process beginning. I have not heard a lot of talk, a lot of questioning of candidates about impeachment. I mean, certainly the last presidential debate it was the dominant topic, but but it seems like uh, you know, I, I, it wasn't something I heard a lot of people clamoring for. On, on social media, at least in my circles, they were. I was literally calling Congresswoman Axney every day <clears throat> for a couple weeks there until she finally came out in support of impeachment. Um, there has been no issue in the last two years that has motivated me more than this one. And I'm just one person. I know that there are many others that share that perspective. And maybe it's because I'm particularly sensitive to legal things because I'm a lawyer. But I think that if, if you look back at, at social media and, and like Twitter and, and news articles and things, there, there was dissatisfaction for the Democrats not holding Trump accountable. There's dissatisfaction now for them letting witnesses get away with not showing up to hearings and not holding them in contempt and jailing them. I mean, you've heard that. There, there's a lot of fire on the left side of the political spectrum for holding Trump accountable for his crimes. Now, it may not be universal. I'm sure there are people that feel differently. And I agree that the average sort of low-information voter doesn't really want to get into the weeds about impeachment. They're much more interested in minimum wage and things like that. So it's very important the Democrats not lose focus on those other issues. But I do think they have to do this. I think it's the right thing to do. And it will be over by January or so. And they can move on to other issues. Well, hey, um, thanks for joining us, Joseph. Absolutely. It's, Folks, it's a we, good discussion. We've been wrangling here with uh, uh, Joseph Glazebrook. Uh, impeachment is a topic that's probably going to be uh, before the public uh, eye for the, what, the next couple, three months at least. We'll see where it goes after that. Again, thanks for uh, tuning in to the first segment of today's program. We'll be back shortly with more conversation. We're going to be giving you an update on the Iowa caucuses, looking at some of the big stories on climate change coming out, and more. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns. Someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. 
It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market, serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant... Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Excellent conversation with uh, Joseph Glazeberg. Always appreciate Joseph coming on the program. Uh, we don't always agree on everything, but hey, it's a it's, it's a the impeachment conversation is a convoluted one. There's lots to it, and there's lots to climate change. You know, I never know. Every week we do this climate update, and I, I, I it's hard to pick which stories to cover. There's so much going on. Of course, you wouldn't know that by reading the mainstream media because they hardly even recognize that there's a climate crisis. And even when they have the opportunity, a severe weather outbreak, uh, a, 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 a fire, um, you name it, all these different things that are happening because of the changing climate, they, they sometimes will you know, totally ignore that and just talk about what's happening without talking about the cause. It's like looking at a, a murder uh, or a fire and saying, okay, this is what's happening, but we're not going to tell you, you know, who did the murder or who, who lit the fire. Or, you know, they, they always do that. You know, when there's... When, when it's a natural disaster or uh, some kind of a, an act of human violence, they always try to get to the, the reason why it happened. They don't seem to want to do that with climate. So you hear all these stories where you've got an opening and they aren't, they aren't, even, aren't even mentioning it. So a couple of things to talk about here. First of all, the uh, climate justification trial that yours truly is involved with, one of five people who uh, – Protested a Donald Trump a fundraiser in West Des Moines. This is right after he came back from England, where he had f- showcased his profound climate denial. I said some really embarrassing things. Not that that's not a fairly regular occurrence, but he was fresh off that trip, came to West Des Moines for a fundraiser, and five of us protested that and were arrested. We have been arguing that we were justified to be there because of the urgency of the climate crisis, because of the 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 fact that we have to we have to embrace an emergency response, and we have a president who continues to deny even the existence of climate change. So we felt justified in being there. The ruling the ruling just came down the tail end of last week. The judge disagreed. He ruled that we were we were found guilty of misdemeanor trespass. Now that. Um, we are looking at whether or not to appeal that. So stay tuned. This is not over yet. And again, climate necessity defenses around the country have oftentimes been found to be very viable. And uh, more and more judges and juries have agreed that uh, there is an issue here. 
All right, so um, yeah, while I was, uh, I've, I've been pleased with our ability to raise some profile about climate urgency through this trial. I got to tell you, what happened at the Harvard Yale football game on Saturday uh, trumped us. No pun intended. So uh, maybe you maybe you missed this, but apparently uh, students uh, and again. It's always great to see cooperation among rivals. And here we have the students at Yale and Harvard getting along, cooperating on how to bring forth the urgency of climate change. So they did it. Uh, demonstrators uh, stormed the field during halftime, and they delayed the game for about an hour. And their demand was that both universities must divest from their uh, investments in fossil fuels. And, um, again, they focused on calling out the urgency of climate change. They had banners. Um, they were also uh, a little bit confused about this. They were also uh, speaking out against um, the, the debt in Puerto Rico and the treatment of, uh, of uh, certain minority groups in China. I'm a big believer in staying focused, and there may be reasons locally why that made sense. I don't know what the universities are doing relevant to that. But what really came across was students concerned about climate and concerned that their universities are investing in fossil fuel companies. Now, this is, this is becoming a bigger, bigger issue across the country. More and more colleges and universities and other entities are divesting their monies from fossil fuel companies. Now, this protest, um, I, again, you watch the video from it. It's, 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 um, it's really, you get the band out there and then suddenly 12, 12 people. No, maybe, I, I can't remember, a few dozen came out on the field and they got, they've, they've got the banners and then, as uh, you know, over the next um, bit of time, more and more people come onto the field, and you've got almost 500 people at one point. And um, it's so many that, of course, uh, yeah, the the authorities don't know what to do about this. And they um, they do eventually clear the field and arrest a couple dozen or so. I'm not quite sure how many people got arrested. Um, my story, the story I'm glancing at here, hasn't uh, released that information, but there were definitely arrests. They slowed the game down. There were some who were um, critical of it, including the university, of course. <laughs> but there were some uh, football players, including one of the quarterbacks, who said, yeah, I get what they're doing. It's important. So um, I'm, I'm going to be curious to see whether this continues, whether there are other, um, other schools, other big games that are interrupted by, <clears throat> by people that um, – want to make sure that climate is being addressed. And yeah, um, it should be addressed. Um, new information out from the UN's uh, World Meteorological Organization. Greenhouse gases uh, just hit a record high. Again, why are we surprised? So, um, yeah, in 2018, the uh, measurement of, uh, of nitrous oxide, of um, carbon dioxide, of... Um, of methane are all above average for the last decade, and the um, the World Meteorological Organization points out that the gap between targets and reality are both glaring and growing. And again, the targets are what was established back at the uh, the climate the Paris Climate Summit, which of course the U.S. is bailing out on. But those targets and the reality of where we're going are just out of sync. By 2030. We're supposed to see a 45% reduction in global greenhouse gas emissions if we're going to have any hope at all of keeping global warming to a level that will not endanger human existence on this planet. And so that means we've got to be declining now. To get to, 20, to, get to a 45% reduction by 2030, you've got to already be in decline mode. We're not. It's all going the wrong way. And, you know, I, I don't... Um, I, I don't I don't I don't fault the students who protested the Harvard Yale game. I don't I don't fault anyone who is doing anything. You know, any any nonviolent action right now makes sense in the face of this crisis that is being ignored by government officials, by the media, by so many others, by the general public. So, uh, and again, I'm glad the uh, I'm glad the UN is continuing to call it out despite criticism from President Trump and of course others. So. Um, more bad news. Uh, we'll give you the good news later, but more bad news. Um, China has been uh, pulling back on subsidies for for uh, solar panels. 
And again, I know there are those who say, well, they shouldn't be subsidizing any form of energy. Well, you know, great. Let's, let's, let's start by eliminating the billions of dollars, some, some say as many as $30 billion in U.S. subsidies for fossil fuel companies. I'd be all for that. You know, um, but China was supporting the, uh, the um, it's a solar panel industry with, with some fairly generous support. And um, again, beyond the issue of whether or not it makes sense for government to be involved in the free market, <laughs> even in China, uh, given the severity of the global climate crisis, you know, an investment, an investment of public funds that helps push private companies to succeed in building more solar panels, that makes a lot of sense. And so um, it's no longer happening. You know, China was regarded as one of the green leaders in the world with their investment in solar and wind, even at the same time as they were also regarded, rightfully, as one of the biggest polluters with um, all the new coal-fired power plants they're building. But now, you know, I mean, that, that, that's a conundrum. But now maybe it's easier just to say, no, they're no better than anyone else at this point, uh, maybe worse. They're... Um, rapidly, well, they have become the largest emitter of carbon pollution in the world. And it looks like that might continue. There's so many parts of the world you could talk about. The other one I want to mention is Florida. There is um, one of the keys, uh, Key Largo, where uh, seawater has flooded the streets in some of the neighborhoods in Key Largo for 82 consecutive days. Now, that's, that's rather incredible. Now, historically, there are what are called king tides, and those happen in South Florida in the fall. But um, this is unprecedented. And it's not because of rain. It's because of rising sea levels. Now, you know, it's, it's not, it's not well, yeah, you could say it's not just climate change. Some are saying, well, it's not just climate change. We had a really bad Hurricane Dorian <clears throat> and that's had an impact. Well, why are we having really bad hurricanes? You know, we're having really bad hurricanes because, uh, I mean, you can, you can get really bad hurricanes, but there's no doubt you can measure the fact that hurricanes are stronger, um, uh, dumping more rain because they're moving slower. And so, yeah, you, maybe you can blame Hurricane Dorian in part, but again, that's a factor of what's happening with climate change. So, you know, right now we have this situation, and you have to wonder if Key Largo isn't the canary in Florida's mines, com considering what's likely to continue to happen with climate change. So um, the good news I want to leave you with, <laughs> and there's, there's more good news out there, but, you know, it's important to try to offer you a cross-section of what's going on. Okay, so uh, there was um, kind of shock and dismay when Chile pulled out of the climate summit, the UN climate summit in December, and immediately stepping into the void was Spain, uh, offering the city of Madrid uh, for the December 1st through, what, uh, first week or so of December, the, uh, the climate summit. And again, um, the, there were people, there was a group of um, uh, young people who had uh, crossed over, came to the U.S. Uh, by boat because they didn't want to fly. <laughs> and they arrived just in time to be sent back. So... Um, most notably uh, uh, is Greta Thunberg, of course, who refuses to fly because of carbon emissions. And uh, she took a sailboat to the U.S., uh, came to Iowa, a bunch of other places, was planning to head to Chile when this happened. So now she's crossing the Atlantic by a catamaran. <laughs> I hope she gets there in time. Anyway, the um, this is a big deal because, um, you know, Madrid is not, I mean, normally these things take a couple months to put together. No, what am I saying? More like a couple, you know, more like six months to a year to pull these things off. And they're trying to do this in just a few weeks. Um, they're feeling really positive about it. I think they can do it. I commend them for taking a shot at it. And uh, we'll see what happens. But again, if this climate summit doesn't produce the kind of action that we should have had out of Paris... Um, you know, increasingly, we're you know we're looking at a, a situation that I, I don't know how we're going to pull through. Anyway, we keep pushing. 
And we keep fighting. Back in a minute, folks. This is Ed Fallon with you on the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa at the studios of Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. A quick shout out to our local business partners in the Des Moines Metro. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe located at 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store and a fantastic place for breakfast, lunch, supper. Gateway also has a catering service. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant, that's Hawk, H-O-Q, Restaurant, in Des Moines East Village, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers, even in the winter. That's Hawk Restaurant. Thanks also to Diversity Insurance, located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. Get all your insurance needs met under one roof, folks. That's Diversity Insurance. Stop by. No appointment needed. And finally, thanks to Community CPA, with offices in Des Moines, Iowa City, Minneapolis. That's my tax and accounting firm. And uh, Ying Sa, the owner and founder, is accessible and knowledgeable. Give her a shout. That's Ying Sa with Community CPA. All right, so welcome back to the program. This is our Iowa Caucus update component. Always something interesting to talk about, at least for the next few months. And I know people around the country are jealous of us here in Iowa because we get to have all this personal contact with candidates. But I tell you what. So many of us are just so looking forward to it being over. It's not just a great opportunity. It's a heck of a lot of work. And um, a lot of my work lately has been to go, to go talk with Joe Biden. And uh, we've had no shortage of opportunities to do that. And the most interesting encounter was just this past weekend. He, um, he uh, received the endorsement of Tom Vilsack. And again, I suspect, even though Biden has dropped significantly in the polls, it's interesting, by the way, that in the two states that vote first— Iowa, New Hampshire, Biden has fallen quite a bit, even though he may continue to still be seen as the lead candidate nationally. But we all know how that works. If you don't do well in Iowa, in New Hampshire, you're probably tanked. So um, what is the reason he's not polling well in Iowa, in New Hampshire? Well, I think uh, there's there's various reasons. Um, One is he has not had a strong ground game in Iowa. Now he's trying to change that. And uh, helping that ground game was the endorsement, receiving the endorsement this weekend of Governor Vilsack, Tom Vilsack, and his wife, Christy Vilsack. Uh, you know, when Vilsack ran for president back in 2008, uh, before then in, say, 2006, seven, he was not polling very well in Iowa. You can't be a candidate, a presidential candidate from Iowa and not win Iowa. I mean, hands down. When Harkin ran for president back in 1992, he got over 70% in the Iowa caucuses. You know, and Vilsack was polling fourth back then. So, you know, an endorsement from Vilsack back then wouldn't have meant as much as it does now. He has vastly impro- improved his um, PR <laughs> work with Iowans. Um, there's a lot of folks who respect him for a lot of reasons. And um, that endorsement might matter. That might help Biden, who is now in fourth place in Iowa. We'll see. One of my concerns is that he tends to talk out of both sides of his mouth. Let me just say it bluntly. He, I don't know where he stands sometimes. And uh, that's been our problem with the Dakota Access Pipeline, which he seems to be strongly against. But then when you hear him you know, talk about expanding, replacing existing gas pipelines, you know, those two things don't add up. And I had an interesting uh, entry point to talk with him about that after the event with the Vilsacks on Saturday. So um, quite a few people, and it was hard to get you know right up to him. But I was I was a I was a little little distance away, and I, I he was talking to two small children, maybe six seven years old, and I, I saw him turn away, and he pulled out his wallet, and he pulled two five dollar bills out of that wallet, <laughs> and he put the wallet away, and then he turned around and he and he very and he had it all crumpled up in his hand. I mean he didn't just hand them the bills. In a very open kind of way, he had them in his hand, so you could barely, you really couldn't even tell what was in his hand, but you could tell that he was giving them these two $5 bills. And I said, I blurted out, come on, Joe, Andrew Yang is giving people $1,000. You think that's going to work to give him five? (laughs) 
<laughs> I said, that just kind of blurted out of me. And he turns to me and he says, yeah, well, they could never eat $1,000 worth of ice cream. And I said, well, you know, they, they might be able to. I said, kids love ice cream. And then I said, and about that pipeline, <laughs> we immediately started to try to shift the conversation to, and I said, you know, I like that you're against the pipeline. You say you are. And then I'm troubled by your support for replacing them. What's the, um, where does that come together? And his response is one that I still need to sort through because, again, it, it didn't immediately strike me as logical and, and, um, and, uh, and fully acceptable. We'll see where that goes. But, again, Joe Biden is planning to spend more time in Iowa. He's got the endorsement of, um, of Governor, Governor Vilsack. That certainly kind of counts for something. We'll see where it goes. His biggest problem might be Pete Buttigieg, who has um, recast himself as the, quote, moderate in the race. And I, I have a real trouble with the word moderate. It's a way to imply, well, moderation. All things are moderation, right? So somebody who is moderate is implicitly the best option. But it's not it, – that, that word really has no place in the political lexicon. And there's a lot of concern about Buttigieg – and his rapport with the black community, both in his home state and elsewhere. Um, there's concern about how he has moved on issues from what seemed to be a more progressive posture to a more, quote, centrist, moderate, uh, maybe a better way, better way to describe it is corporate-friendly posture. And we've seen that on health care. And that... Um, that may be helping him in some, in some sense. Again... Take, I take away nothing from the fact that the guy is a great speaker and uh, presents really well. Uh, I mean, he's every meeting I've had with him has been very positive. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I don't – I think the, the problem a lot of people are having is he's so fresh, so new. Do we really know where he stands on stuff, especially looking at how he has moved his position on some key issues in order to try to be that candidate that is the alternative to Joe Biden? We'll see where that goes. Right now, it's working really well for him. But again, just because you're in first place in Iowa and New Hampshire in November doesn't mean you're going to be there in February. We'll see what happens. The last thing I want to say, um, oh, my gosh, I could talk about every single candidate. Uh, I've seen Marianne Williamson recently, and uh, I really like Marianne's uh, message. I like her demeanor. I, I like her accessibility. Um, she's one of the most accessible, ac accessible candidates in my experience. And um, she was asked uh, this weekend, or last, last week, I guess, uh, in Fairfield, a man asked her, Marianne, please tell us about what's next for your campaign. And Williamson responded, unfortunately, I'm not on the debate, on the debate stage. I think probably all of you saw what happened after the second debate. I don't know if you've heard, I'm a terribly dangerous Crystal woo-woo lady, new age whack job. <laughs> I, I I respect and admire Marianne's sense of humor, and I think I th I think what she points to, and she says, "quote That narrative certainly had an effect." I think that might be an understatement. Again, when the um, when the, the the powers that be within the Democratic Party and their allies in corporate America, especially inside corporate media, when they get a hold of you and they are successful at tagging you in a very unfavorable light, it's hard not to, it's hard, that, that sticks. It's hard to get rid of that. That's a stigma that maybe you may be stuck with for the rest of your career even. Now, that article was from Iowa Starting Line. Um, it's a, Marianne, again, hasn't been getting a lot of coverage by the corporate media in Iowa. They tend to follow the polls and tend to follow the you know, four or five candidates that they think are the most likely to succeed here. So we'll see what happens. Again, I know she's not, quote, polling well. I do also know that uh, people who hear her message are saying, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I saw that several times um, in several different communities around the state where people responded very favorably to what she had to say. But, yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, again, uh, I've, I've said this before, too. The, the establishment has been very uh, hard on Tulsi Gabbard. 
They're, of course, also hard, but more subtly hard on Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren. Again, the bottom line is the establishment does not like progressives. And let me let me rephrase that. The Democratic Party does not like progressives. And that's a problem because if the Democratic Party makes the same mistake that it makes often enough and tries to nominate somebody who they label as, quote, moderate or, quote, centrist, but who really, what we're looking at is somebody who is um, not interested in significant change, not interested in attacking the problems in a big way, uh, you're going to find an enthusiasm gap such as we've seen in the past. And, and you know, there, there's, no, there's no curing that. You, you, you know, you can go out and vote for the candidate that you don't particularly care for, but who you know is the better choice. In this case, any Democrat versus Donald Trump is what most people are going to be thinking, right? But if you're also, if you, what really makes a difference in an election is if that voter is engaged prior to going to the voting booth. If that voter is engaged by talking with their family, their friends, their neighbors, uh, willing to get on a phone, willing to go put up yard signs. Those little things matter so much, especially when you, tie, when you multiply them by thousands and thousands of engaged voters, engaged volunteers. Without that, you're in big trouble. And again, I, I think that's, that's going to be the challenge. Uh, uh, which candidates are going to not only you know, you know, run well against Donald Trump, but deliver the kind of response that Americans are hungry for, and at the same time, inspire a base that is engaged and active and working hard to get them elected. So, you know, I, I, think, um, I, I think we're – I, I say this somewhat facetiously. It's only November. Again, we started working uh, – uh, going to candidate events back in December of last year. <laughs> so it's been a long slog for Iowans who – are aware of our responsibility to try to make sure we send the best nominee forward. And, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Again, I I will not be surprised. You know, there are candidates who aren't faring very well, who might do better as the uh, campaign continues to unfold. You know, one of those is Amy, Amy Klobuchar, who I personally have a lot of trouble with because of her stand on pipelines and her unwillingness to answer questions. That is fairly unique. Nearly every other candidate I know of is willing to at least answer questions. But, you know, she's got a message that is resonating with uh, with some folks in rural Iowa. Um, you know, Buttigieg, of course, is in the is in the uh, the uh, catbird seat right now. But, you know, you, you've got um, uh, I mean, I'm actually surprised Cory Booker has, isn't doing isn't polling better in Iowa, and that may change because he is a very strong candidate with a very good message and a really great delivery. Uh, and you know, I, I don't I don't know. It's hard to say where it's all going to go, but the next week or two here actually is going to be pretty intense. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Stay around if you're on our community-owned stations. Thanks to Ashley Martinez, Kathy Burns, and Sherry Herdina, our team here at the Fallon Forum on La Reina. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. As the uh, weather gets colder and as we move toward the annual holiday shopping frenzy season, we think about gifts and uh, those, well, gifts for everybody, of course, uh, <laughs> but especially those in need. And again, a, a word about the, the holiday shopping season. I'm not a fan uh, it, and again, I, I love the fact that many of my small business friends um, find uh, it, it's, it's their ticket to ending up in the black. I get that. And I, and I think it's great when people go out and buy things that, that, they're, that are for people, that those people actually need. Uh, just, just we, we, as a society, we need to back off a little bit um, and, and start spending, you know, investing a little more thought into what really is important as we – wind out the, um, the year. And um, I want to commend uh, a woman in the Des Moines area, Sandy Davis, for what she's doing now, uh, well in advance even of Thanksgiving. I believe, actually, she started working on this a long time ago. So um, Sandy makes scarves 
In addition to making scarves, they bought other scarves. They bought mittens and gloves and hats. And her intent is to share those with anybody who needs them. And as with many parts of the country, homelessness in Des Moines is worse than it used to be. And I'm not going to call it a problem. Homelessness is a symptom of a much deeper problem. But obviously, when people are in that situation, when they're perhaps living somewhere that's uh, that's uh, where there is no heat, there who who knows what their circumstances. You know, not all homeless people are living in tents or sleeping under bridges, especially this time of the year. It's rough. Uh, and um, what Sandy has been doing is um, they. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to read you this, uh, this, this, uh, this section from the uh, story, the uh, WHO Channel 13 story about it. She said, it says, quote, um, Sandy's family, some dressed up as comic book heroes like Batman, Spider-Man, and Supergirl, spent last Sunday wrapping well over 100 items. Not, not wrapping them in wrapping, not wrapping them in paper, but wrapping them around lampposts and railings and trees near the Des Moines Sculpture Park for others to take at no cost but with a message. Now, we, um, we saw these, uh, Kathy and I saw these, um, this, the tree right outside of Ritual Cafe, you know, like five or six um, scarves and hats and other items in there. And we looked at them. Each one had a sign saying, warm hugs for those in needs. Those in need. Uh it's, uh, it's inspiring. In fact, uh, I, <laughs> we, and I, I suspect other people, have um, decided to also add clothing items to those, um, to those trees and lampposts and whatnot. Because, um, again, there is no shortage of need this time of year, uh, especially with the early onset of cold weather, complements of the polar vortex. Uh, there are more and more people who are struggling with the, uh, with the temperatures. And... Um, you know, so here, here's, here's an anecdote from my experience as to why this kind of generosity is important. Uh, years ago, when I was a state lawmaker, I would go to the, the prison in my county was the women's prison, Mitchellville. And I would go to that prison on a regular basis and uh, meet, with, meet with inmates, uh, talk with officials, um, mostly try to be an advocate for inmates who had an issue, a, tr- a problem. I remember one woman I met, a black woman from Des Moines, I believe. And we got to talking, and I found out why she was in there. She was in there because uh, she stole a winter hat for her kid. And uh, she had been given three years for stealing a winter hat for her kid. Now, beyond the whole reality that that level of sentencing is, oh, is, is so is, is infuriating. I mean, I know... I know of um, a woman who embezzled six million. She also got three years. So maybe there's the there's the secret there. If you're gonna go big on, if you're gonna if you're gonna do a crime, go big on it, right? I mean that that's just so wrong. A woman just trying to get a, a warm hat for her kid, three years in prison. So this is a an ancillary reason as to why this type of um, generosity by Sandy Davis and her family is important. Again. Obviously, it's providing warm clothing to people in need, but it might also provide warm clothing to someone who has no other option and who might feel that as she's walking through a Walmart or Dollar General or some other store, she might feel like, my kid, her head is cold. Her ears are at risk of frostbite. I'm just going to take this hat. I don't have the money to pay for it. I'm just going to take this hat. So, again, that's a true story. <laughs> and and maybe, maybe, maybe those kinds of stories won't happen because of this generosity. So I want to read you a little bit more from the story uh, on, on WHO. Each item has a card that reads, again, warm hugs for those in need. Uh, Tobias Becker, he's been homeless for over 17 years. And when asked what the act of kindness says to him, he says, quote, it gives me inspiration. 
It gives me inspiration and makes me want to do more for my people. And I, maybe by my people, he means other folks who are homeless. So Becker says that he noticed Sandy Davis and her family. Uh, and and, and he, he, uh, he indicated that they are, in his opinion, you know, they were dressed like superheroes. He said they are true superheroes. As Becker points out, again, the homeless, the man who's been homeless for 17 years, he says, quote, when it gets colder, it's a lot tougher, and we have to fend for ourselves. Times get more desperate. I remember um, a guy that I, I knew. He was a middle-aged fellow, and uh, he would heat his tent with candles. And I was amazed talking to him about how much heat you can generate with candles, even on a very, very cold night. But maybe some of the listeners um, see the downside of heating your tent with candles, fire risk. And uh, yeah, he burned his tent down. Lucky he got out alive. I'm sure that's not the only incident of a tent burning down, a homeless person's tent burning down because they were trying to heat it with some candles. So the... uh, you know, it, it may it may not seem like a big deal, just a, a hat, a scarf, a pair of mittens, a pair of gloves. Uh, but again, for folks who find themselves homeless in Des Moines or anywhere for that matter, you know, that can make the, the difference between, between life and death, uh, between comfort and misery, or uh, between making a, a rash decision to steal uh, as opposed to just going and grabbing one of these off a tree or, or a lamppost. So, you know, Becker, again, the homeless man, said, quote, sometimes we, we become comfortable with what we are doing and sit down and rest, and then it gets too cold. We don't realize it, and hours have passed, and you wake up with frostbite, or even you don't wake up. Yeah, I, I, I know what he means. You know, if I'm, if I'm out in the cold, and I take a break from walking or whatever I'm doing and maybe it goes on a little bit maybe the break goes on a little bit longer and I don't really notice what's happening it's hard to warm up again and uh, you know if you're homeless and and the place you go to warm up is a tent with some candles that's an issue so again uh, kudos to Sandy Davis for what she's doing Uh, she says quote for the people in need keep the hope tomorrow will be better maybe and this is the second year she's been doing that. And uh, she's already preparing for next year. So she'll go out and, and buy some, uh, ho- hopefully at, at, at reasonable prices, some fabric and, and get, get going on, uh, on scarves and stuff for the following year. So it is a shame that these things need to happen. It is a shame that we have a system in which uh, so much wealth accrues to people, a very thin crust of people who admittedly come on admit it they have more than they need it's such a it's such a travesty of, of of dignity that we allow a system that 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 that, that eschews wealth in such a horribly um imbalanced direction it, it's it's a travesty that we allow that to happen and again there are so many indicators of the problem the one that gets most talked about in political circles of course is the declining economic uh, viability of the middle class family, and for that matter, the decline of the middle class itself. And that's certainly one problem. Another issue that gets mentioned frequently in the political uh, campaigns that I have my ear on, the fact that um, a huge percentage of Americans would not be able to pay for a four or $500 emergency. They don't have the money to do that. And it's not that long ago that we remember the housing crash, the financial crash of 2008, and how many people lost their homes in foreclosure. And where do those folks end up? How many of them ended up homeless? And part of the problem with being homeless, once you become homeless, it's really hard to get out. And I know people who have gotten out. And um, I know people who, again, who were you know, functional, getting, functional before that job loss, that apartment loss, that, 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 uh, that, uh, that, that foreclosure that forced them to be homeless. And again, you get in there and you get stuck. You get stuck. And I, one problem I remember uh, people telling me about was, um, no, you want to apply for jobs. Try to, try to get some money, get out, of, get out of that situation. And you realize, well, I can't just 
you know, show up at a job interview smelling like I've been out in the, uh, in the woods for, for a week or um, not having a clean pair of clothes. And so maybe you find those clean clothes at a Goodwill, but the other problem is getting that shower, you know, and, and sometimes that's hard to do. And if you've got any criminal record at all, even if it's a mild one, that might be all you need to ever, you know, to prevent you from getting the, getting the job that's going to get you out of homelessness. So I think we have to be aware that there are so many signs right now that uh, uh, our priorities in this country are out of whack. Uh, beyond the concern that we all have about climate change, Again, the, the, the fact that income inequality in this country has grown to be so, so, uh, so dramatic, so noticeable, that we have a situation, again, many, many indicators, but the one I'm talking about today, the increase in homelessness. And at least we have people like Sandy Davis who are willing to try to do their part to provide some immediate relief. But beyond immediate relief, we need substantive change. And that's only going to come with a reckoning that we have uh, a structure in place, a system in place, that is not going to be repaired with tweaks. It's going to take serious and major overhauls. Again, this is Ed Fallon on the Fallon Forum, thanking you for tuning in.